0: Um, as you turn to Matthew 26, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 36 and forward. But before we do, I, I just want to read a psalm. You don't have to turn there. But Psalm 30, verse 5, um, part of that psalm says this. Sorrow, or weeping, endures the night. But what? Joy. But joy comes in the morning. Right? We read that verse so many times as uh, humans. And where, do we, where, do our, where does our focus go? Our focus goes... To the joy, right? I mean, we, we don't want to deal with the sorrow. We don't want to deal with the weeping and the anguish. <clears throat> we know that, hey, that's brief. That's, that's just enduring for the night. Uh, some verses say tor- uh, sorrow or weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And we have songs that we sing about that. And it's so easy as human beings to skip over the first part of that phrase, that you have to go through the night of sorrow in order to enjoy the joy in the morning. We don't like to think of life that way, but that's true. Um, what makes joy so joyful, I guess is the word, is so so energizing, so delightful, you might say, is the sorrow that comes through the night. When it says their sorrow endures For the night, that word endure means to run throughout, completely. Sorrow runs throughout. Sorrow lasts throughout the night. Weeping lasts throughout the night. I don't know about you, but I'm sure you have. Have you ever had a night like that? (laughs) A sorrowful night, a weeping night. Um, Maybe you're a parent and you're waiting for your teenager to come home. (laughs) And they're not home at the appointed time. Minutes turn into hours, and hours seem to turn into days. You're anxious about them arriving home safely. You can't sleep. Or maybe you've been in that hospital room with a loved one who's on death's door. And you had to wait through the night. And it just seems like it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. And you realize that loved one that is there with you in that hospital room is not going to last much longer. They're not going to be on this earth much longer. Those are very, very, very troubling, very long nights. Maybe you've just been in your own bed, flipping and flopping and turning, and (laughs) something's just in your gut. Something's weighing you down. There's worry, there's anxiousness, and you can't sleep. I mean, you see on TV now commercials, you know, if you can't sleep, here, buy this buy this supplement, buy that, you know. And a lot of times it's because we're so anxious, we're so caught up. Our minds are so gripped with worry, and we just can't get it out of our head. And we all go there. None of us are above that. And this psalm says... That sorrow endures the night. Weeping endures the night. What we're going to look at this morning has to be, it is, one of the longest nights in Jesus' life here on earth. One of the longest nights. There's something about nighttime in particular um, That when we have worries, we have concerns, we have sorrow. Nighttime just seems to accentuate it. (laughs) It makes it even worse, right? Um, There's something about darkness. It just seems like all hope is lost forever. And we've all been there in the middle of the night and it's dark and we're worried and we're praying. We're trying to go to sleep and we can't. And we're just caught up with this whatever it might be. And then we see the sun come up. And as soon as the sun comes up, we realize, it's not really as bad as I thought. It just feels a little different with some sunlight breaking through the darkness of the room. Well, here we're headed into what would be Jesus' longest night while he was here on earth. And we're going to kind of not hurry through this this morning, but we're going to take a little time to linger on the sorrow aspect of Jesus's night. We're going to hang on that first line of the psalm. Sorrow endures the night. Weeping endures the night. It's going to be a hard message. It's going to be a heavy message. It was hard for me to study this this week just because it's so somber. And for years, on Palm Sunday, I would always teach, hey, Jesus joyously coming in, people singing Hosanna. And, you know, we've had those messages, and those are wonderful. That's not one of these, this is not one of those messages. I'm just warning you. Okay? It's not. We're looking at Jesus's longest night in his life. It's going to be a heavy message because what we're going to read is a very somber text. It's not a text that you'll read and go, yippee, I'm happy in Jesus. And we're meant to feel the weight of what Jesus felt. Because remember, he didn't do this for himself. He did it for us. We're meant to feel the weight of what Jesus feels here. And we have to be careful in our in our joy and in our anticipation and our, 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 our kind of forward-looking to the cross, our rush to get to the, 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 the tomb to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, we have to be careful that we don't miss this part. Because if you rush over this part, then it's just going to be, eh, okay, yeah, Jesus came out of the grave, big deal. We have to be careful to stay In the night, a little longer here, to linger here in the sorrow. We don't want to allow this weight to pass us by. Because if we don't allow the weight to kind of feel the weight that Jesus was carrying here, if we don't feel that here, then we're not really going to sense the gratitude. We're really not going to sense the worship that God really deserves. Because of what we're going to read. This is the longest night of Jesus' life. I mean, think about it. In this one night, in this one night, he's had one of his closest confidants, Judas, betray him. And we we talked about what that means. It's kind of like he stabbed him in the back, (laughs) literally. He's arrested. He's convicted of crimes that he didn't commit. That would be hard. That alone would be hard, right? If you got arrested and thrown in jail for something you didn't even do. Not only that, but he had one of his closest friends. The one who said, Lord, I'll die for you. Deny him. So not only does he go through Judas's betrayal, he goes through what Peter's denial of him. And ultimately, it's not just Peter. Everybody around our Lord abandons him. Leaves him. He alone is on the cross. It's a long night for Jesus. And so we're going to look at one part of this long night. And I'm hopeful and I'm, I'm prayerful that the Lord will allow you this morning to feel the weight of the text we're going to read. Because if you do, the empty tomb, as we're marching down the pathway toward Resurrection Sunday, it's going to be a much, much greater celebration for you if you understand the gravity of this situation that Jesus finds himself in. So as you took your Bibles there, um, you turn to Matthew 26, This is basically the last time when we were here, we were studying that Jesus was up there in the upper room with the disciples last week, and they gathered to celebrate the Passover, you remember? And Jesus has done something incredible with the the Passover. He changes the meaning of the Passover because it's something that the Jews celebrated for years. Over 1,300 years they celebrated the Passover, and they've been celebrating the Passover. Passover, which is basically the celebration of the the freedom from slavery under Pharaoh. But Jesus gathers his disciples around and he he says to them, You know, from here on out, we're not going to be looking back at what God did for the, the nation of Israel. That's It's there, it's history, but that's not going to be our focus. It's no longer looking back about getting out of physical bondage and slavery to Pharaoh. That's done. Now, you're going to look at this this moment that I'm having with you right now in the upper room. This is what he wanted them to see. Because what I'm going to do, Jesus was telling them, in this spiritual liberation and in, in this spiritual freedom through my sacrifice, you're going to be free from sin and death and hell. It's so much more significant than just the Passover. And I'm going to provide this through my death and my resurrection. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's table today. That's why we celebrate communion. We did last week. That's why we'll celebrate communion on Friday. Now, it's, it's nice to know the history of the Passover and all that, but we don't do Passover here. We've moved on. Because in that moment, in the upper room, Jesus <clears throat> changed, changed the whole perspective, the whole meaning of what it meant. And now we come to this part here, and he, he comes out. Think of it. He comes, he comes out of this joyous time with his, his disciples, celebrating the Passover, out of the upper room. He leaves the upper room. They're singing worship songs to their heavenly father. And they enter into a garden. This is what we're going to read. And we see here in this moment, Jesus goes from worshiping the father in heaven, worshiping his father in heaven with his disciples, to being absolutely terrified absolutely horrified of the father in the garden. It's an incredible moment. And I hope that we're prepared to receive what God has to say. Well, you can follow along in your Bibles. It's a rather lengthy text, so you can just stay in your seat. But Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there around you in one of the seats. It says in verse 36, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, Gethsemane, that's the, the garden, okay, it means crushed, is what that word means. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be, look at these words, sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Verse 39, and going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me just one hour? Watch and pray, now look at what he says, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 42, again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came, verse 45, to his disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, and one of the 12, there it is, and with him a great crowd, with swords and with clubs, from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. He, and he kissed him. And we looked last week at how that meant he kissed him, and he kissed him, and he kissed him. I mean, he laid it on thick. He wanted to make sure the sign was seen. It says, and Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up, and they laid hands on Jesus, and they seized him. And behold, one of them who were with Jesus, this is Peter, stretched out his hand. He drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't a swordsman. He wasn't a soldier, clearly. Then Jesus says, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will, at once, he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scripture be fulfilled? That it must be so. At that hour, verse 55, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against me as a, a robber with swords and clubs to capture me day after day? I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then the disciples the, the, then all the disciples left him and fled. <laughs> this is a heavy message because we need to bear the weight of it, of what's going on here. We need to feel the weight because we know that joy will come in the morning, but right now we have to linger a little bit here in the darkness. So they go into here the garden. It's interesting to me that Jesus says here in the text that he tells the disciples in the garden, he says, be aware lest you what? Fall into temptation. He's saying basically the tempter is here. He's saying temptation is all around you. So let's put that together. They are in a garden, and temptation is everywhere. Does that sound familiar to you? (laughs) You see, what Jesus was about to do, he's about to undo for us everything that was done in the first garden. In the first garden, you remember the story in Genesis Adam and Eve were tempted by the tempter. They were tempted by Satan. And what happened? They fell. They gave in to the temptation, they blew it. We deal with sin every day. That's a reminder, right? Unless you think you would do anything different, you wouldn't. We would all have done the same thing, we would all have given in to the temptation. But what a joyous thought it is in the second garden, here where Jesus is, the tempter comes, but our Lord and Savior is able to stand. He's able to stand against the temptation. That word there, Gethsemane, literally means olive press. Olive press. When we were over in the Middle East, they had uh, places where you could buy fresh olive oil, and they would show you how it's made, and that's what they do. They press it out. It's literally what that word means. And it's a vivid illustration here of what's happening to our Lord. Olives have to be crushed. They have to be pressed. They have to be mashed down in order to get the oil out of them. And here, Jesus in Gethsemane, in this garden, he is about to be pressed. He's about to be crushed. He's about to be mashed down. And the temptation that is pressing against him, and ultimately he'll be crushed by the Father on the cross, so that precious blood flows out for us. Remember, it's not for himself, it's for him. It's for us, it's not for himself. And so Jesus says to his disciples here in the text, he says, "Hey, be aware. be alert. Wake up. Make sure your, your, your senses are, are, are on, on alert because we are right here. And Jesus is telling them, without a doubt, the tempter is close. Temptation is right here. It's in our face. So we want to break this passage down a little bit and understand this last temptation of Jesus. You know, a lot of times when we think about the t- temptation of Jesus in his life, what, where do we go? Right, we go to the wilderness, right, where Satan came and tempted him three times, and we think, well, yeah, okay, he endured that temptation. Let me tell you, Jesus was tempted throughout his life. Because the Bible says he was tempted in all means, just like we are. He was tempted throughout his ministry. And this is one of the last temptations that Jesus will have to face. It's kind of the pinnacle moment of his entire earthly life. So, this is the, the highest point of stref, stress. It's the highest point of grief. It's the highest point of sorrow that he will experience as a human being. Right here in the garden. Jesus warns them you're about to be tempted. See, it's not just Jesus in this garden who was tempted. The disciples were going to be tempted too. That's why he wanted them to pray, that they wouldn't fall into the temptation. They're being tempted to abandon Jesus. And guess what? They failed the temptation, didn't they? They gave into it. They did. They did abandon their Lord. And here Jesus is being tempted to abandon what? God's will. He's being tempted to abandon God's purpose for his his time here on earth. I mean, praise God this morning, he stood victorious over this temptation. So that's what we're going to look at. Look at the first point in your outline there. The weight of his temptation, verses 36 and 38. I want you to notice the weight of his temptation. I mean, just listen to the descriptive words that... This text and other Gospels use describing how Jesus felt in this moment. In verse 36, it says his disciples went to this garden, Gethsemane. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful. And troubled, sorrowful, troubled, and then he said to them, "My soul is very sorrowful." So sorrowful wasn't descriptive, descriptive, descriptive enough. He had to say very sorrowful, even to the point of death. He says, <clears throat> and he says, "Remain here and watch me. Watch, watch with me." In Luke twenty-two, verse forty-four, it says, "And being in agony." That word, agony. Have you ever been in agony? He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat, verse 44 says, became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. Falling down to the ground. Mark 14.33 describes this scene as this. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be, listen, greatly distressed and troubled. Those are the words he used. Greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain and watch. It's almost as if all the gospel writers are trying desperately. They're, 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 they're trying so hard to describe what Jesus is going through through mentally, through emotionally, through physically in this moment. And they're all, they're all grasping at adjectives and stuff, everything they can find that would describe this situation. And, and these words that are being used, overwhelmed, sorrowful, troubled, anxious, crushed, distressed, these are incredible words in the original language. They're very strong words. I mean, Luke even says that Jesus, as he was praying, he sweat great drops of blood. Now, Luke was what? What did he do for a profession? He was a doctor, so he knew what he was talking about. There's a medical condition. hermatodrosis, is it's called. I don't know if I pronounced it right, but that's what it's called. And it's a very rare medical condition that causes you to ooze or sweat blood from your skin. And from what I read, it's, it's caused a lot of times by incredible stress, incredible anxiousness. And what happens is the small little vessels and capillaries in your face are, are just... Filled up with blood. And they they begin to break. And as you sweat, the blood comes out with the sweat. It's actually a known medical condition. And so Jesus here on this last night was under extreme pressure, extreme grief, extreme stress, a lot of sadness. I mean, sometimes it's, it, it, it seems to be caused by, by, they say, extreme distress or fear even, such as facing death, torture, or severe ongoing abuse. I mean, it's not just grief, it's not just sorrow, but it's also tremendous fear. That's what causes this. I don't know about you, but when I think about Jesus, I don't think of someone who's fearful. Do you? I don't think of Jesus as being fearful. But guess what? He was filled with fear. He was literally terrified at this point in time. There was a moment... Here in Jesus' life when he was absolutely mortified in his physical life. I mean we ask ourselves the question is there anything Jesus is scared of? And we would most of us would probably say, Oh no. Jesus couldn't be scared of anything, he's God. This word distress in Mark fourteen thirty-three, this word that he uses, it's so easy to overlook these details, but it's important. When it says Jesus was distressed, you know, um, you know, we think of that word, what? Well, you know, you had a bad day. <laughs> you know, a little stressed out, maybe. It's kind of like you take your kids to Walmart, and they all act up, and you come home, and, well, how was it? You know, oh, man, it was so stressful. Just had a distressing day. It's, it's way more than that. It's way more than that. This word, distress, in Mark, literally means this. It means to be gripped with shuddering terror and absolute horror. Wait, isn't this Jesus we're talking about? Yes, that's exactly who we're talking about. When Mark said he was distressed, he was shuddering with horror and absolute terror. As I read this past week, some scholars describe it this way, just to give you an idea, of sense, like, well, How would you, what would cause you to feel this way? One scholar describes it this way if you walked into your house, you came home one day, you walked into your house, and you found your whole family slaughtered, murdered, dead, and then nailed to the the walls of your house. I mean, can you even imagine what would be going through your mind in that moment? It's totally unexpected. You walk in, your whole family's dead. They're hanging on the wall. This is the kind of horror. This is the kind of of absolute terror that was running through Jesus' heart. I mean, we can't even really convey it with words. The weight of this temptation bearing down on him in this moment was just overwhelming. Overwhelming. And it's amazing to me that Jesus leaves the upper room worshiping the Father, but here he enters the garden absolutely terrified to his core of the Father. The same Father. You could say Jesus is beside himself with fear. See, the question that we have to ask ourselves is why? Why? What is so terrifying to Jesus in this moment? Now, don't forget, Jesus not only represents us, he represents you and I on the cross of Calvary, he also represents us in the Garden of Gethsemane. So why is it that he is so terrified and so mortified at this moment in his life? Here's the reason. It's it's because it's for you. It's for me. It's for us. See, Jesus is not going through this process for himself. The Bible says that Jesus is God in the flesh. He needs nothing, he wants nothing, but he is allowing himself to go through this for us. So he asks the question so what is it that's so terrifying? What is it that has our Lord and Savior shuddering with fear and horror? Well, I'm going to tell you what it's not before I tell you what it is. First of all, it's not the fact that he's facing death. Jesus was not afraid to die, my friends. That's the whole purpose he came. He said in Mark 10:45, 45, For even if the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and to what? Give his life a ransom for many. He was not afraid to die physically. In fact, in many ways, it would have been a burden lifted. <laughs> I'm sure we all know who have known people. They get to a point in life where it's like, "Wow, Lord, just take them." And when they die, it's a burden lifted. It would have been so freeing. So it wasn't the fear of the fact of death, that he was facing death. It wasn't even the shame of death. I mean, Jesus is going to die an absolutely shameful death. In the Jewish culture, in the Jewish custom, to be crucified, to be nailed on a cross, and to be hung naked in front of the world to see to be crucified, that's one of the lowest possible ways that they would want to die. It's very shameful. He is going to be mocked. He's going to be insulted. He's going to be whipped. And he's going to be abandoned by everyone. And he's going to be nailed to a bloodied cross as a a, kind of a public spectacle. It's completely shameful. And, And Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12 too, it tells us this. That we should look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross. Then it says this, despising the shame. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus despises the shame, but he wasn't afraid of it. This is what, not what caused this horror in his soul. So if it wasn't the fact of death, it wasn't the shame of death, some people say, well, it must have been the the physical, you know, pain of death. We have to be careful here because we don't want to minimize the excruciating pain that Christ went through physically. To be crucified is, it's unbelievably painful. I don't say that from experience, obviously, but from what I've read about it, it's, it is very, very painful. I mean, basically, you end up suffocating yourself to death because you can't hold yourself up anymore on the cross. And so I'm not trying to minimize how excruciating it was. And if you watch kind of the, the Passion of the Christ, that movie, that's what it accentuates. It, it, it puts in our face really what Christ went through physically. Unfortunately, it stops there. <laughs> kind of like it glorifies all the physical stuff. Well, there's a lot more going on than just the physical pain that Jesus endured. And if you think about it, over the course of history, even as hard as it was for Christ to go through that, there have been many Christians over the last 2,000 years who have faced a painful death for the cause of Christ. And really, they moved toward it rather than from it. Think of some of the early church fathers. I think of Polycarp. And there's a lot of stories, but one comes to mind, Polycarp. And he was an early church father. And he was, basically, they took him out and they strapped him to a pole. And they dumped fuel oil all over his body. And tar. And then the emperor shouted out to Polycarp, curse Christ or die. Die. Here's what Polycarp replied. How can I forsake my king? Who has saved me? I will not. And then he said these words. Light the fire. Would you say that? I hope I would. I might throw a little, help me Jesus, (laughs) light the fire. (laughs) So it's not the fact of death, it's not the shame of death, it's not even the pain of death, because other people have gone through excruciating, painful deaths for the cause of Christ. So what was it that had Jesus so terrified? He He was agonizing, he was absolutely mortified by what he saw, in the cup in our text it tells us he tells his father let this cup be taken from me let this hour pass by what is what's in the cup What's in the cup, beloved, is, is, are basically all the sins of all those who would put their faith and trust in Christ for salvation. It's all of God's wrath, all of God's punishment, all of God's righteous hatred toward those sins. And he was to drink that cup, even though he had never committed one sin. He was perfect in every way. On the cross he would bear the weight of all of the sins of all those who would be saved in all of eternity in all generations for all of eternity. All of those sins were laid on him. He took upon himself all of the father's wrath for every saved person's eternal well-being. All of your sin all of my sin. He bore the weight of all of it on the cross. But all of the spiritual death that you and I, as individuals, would received because of our sin, he took it upon himself. And you multiply that by the millions and millions and millions who have come to Christ and who... Christ died for, he bore on himself their penalty, their punishment, their pain for all eternity. In this moment, in the cup, that's what he was looking at. I pray that you feel a little bit of the weight that's going on in Christ's heart right now. Jesus looks at this cup and he says, I don't want to do this. And guess who's there? Satan. Satan is tempting him to go a different route. Satan is telling him, You know what, I, I have a different way, you can do this. Satan's tempting Jesus to say to the Father, You know what? I can't do it, I won't do it. This is the temptation that Christ was feeling. And guess what? If if Jesus does that, <laughs> salvation is non existent. We are still lost and in our sin. If he does that, hell will be full, heaven will be empty. The Bible is completely untrue if he does this. The way of salvation is completely incomplete. I mean, what a catastrophic moment that would have been if he would have gave in to this temptation. And so Satan is putting pressure on him not to drink the cup. Don't go through with it. Do something different. And the weight of that, as he's looking in, into the cup, excuse me, says, Let this cup pass from me. Don't let me drink this cup, Dad. Father, I, I don't want to drink this cup. So we see the weight of the temptation. If we don't feel that, if we don't feel this weight, then we can just glibly say, Oh, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. Praise God. How wonderful. No, we need, to, we need to linger here a moment and feel the weight of what Christ was going through. Not just the weight of it, but look at the way through his temptation in verse 39. The way through his temptation. He says, in going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I don't know if you remember seeing a picture of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane praying. There's several oil paintings. But it really, I don't think they read this scripture, <laughs> the painters. Because if you remember, the picture kind of has Jesus kneeling down, his hair's flowing, blue eyes, not a drop of sweat on him. He's kneeling down, and he's got his hand on a big rock. And he's looking up into heaven, and the Shekinah glory is shining like angelically upon his face. And we say, Wow. Guess what? That Jesus is not real. That's not what's going on here. That is not what's going on here. It's the really, I mean, when you read this text and you look at the painting, it is so popular, it's the painting's absurd. The picture we have here of Jesus in the garden is Jesus is disheveled. He's, he, is, he is profusely sweating. And he's even bloodied by his own sweat. He may have ripped part of his robe because he's in such agony and, and horror. And he's, he's basically flung himself down, prostate on the ground, and he's collapsed on his face. And he's shouting. He's pleading with his father. I believe that's why, (laughs) you know, when Jesus has the disciples, they come into the garden. Some of them stay here. And he takes three of them. Here, you can come a little further, right? And he brings them. He goes, you guys wait here. I'm going to go pray. Do you ever wonder why he did that? Why wouldn't he take them with him? Two or three are gathered in my name, right? I mean... (laughs) I think he left them back because he did not want them to see him in this state. He was was so undone. If they would have seen him with this fear, and they would have thought, wait a minute. They They would have been heading for the hills. They would have ran away quickly. This is... Not the one, the Jesus that we think about often. We just don't. But listen, this is us. Remember, he did this for us. This is the state we would be in if we were facing what Jesus was facing. He's representing us, it represents you and me. He's doing this for us, he's not doing it for himself so he's flat on his face, and he's pleading his case. I mean, he is just a complete mess. How often do you think of Jesus that way? <laughs> most of the time, we don't. I mean, most of the time, we think of the prim and proper Jesus. We think of, of the Jesus who never sweats under pressure. I'm telling you, that Jesus is not real. That's a Jesus of your own imagination. Because remember, Jesus is what? He's 100% man, right? And he's 100% God. He's God incarnate. And here's what we have to understand. Those two things never mix. They're always separate. They're always separate. He was not a humanized God or a deified man. If you think of him that way, then you're going to miss it. He was 100% man, 100% God. And what that means is that he never tapped into his God powers to minimize his human pain and suffering. He never did, not once. So right here, he is feeling what you would feel, what I would feel. He's not tapping into his, his... supernatural powers as God and saying, hey, well, let's light this up a little bit. This is getting a little difficult. Doesn't do that. This is fully man. We're seeing this, this full human being under the weight and the pressure as he looks into what he has to face in this cup of drinking all of eternal hell, the destinies of all the people who would, who would go to hell without his sacrifice. He's, he's, he's looking at that and he's like, I have to bear their sins. He's agonizing over it. Paul describes this in Philippians chapter two, verse five. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what? Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, what does it say, to the point of death. Even death on a cross. See, Paul is telling us, Jesus did not tap into his divine powers for his own advantage. He could have. No, he allowed himself to feel the weight, to feel the pressure of this temptation that he was facing. And you ask, well, why is this so important? Why is this so important? Well, I think it's important for a couple reasons. First of all, it strengthens our faith in who Jesus is. I mean, Jesus said, I'm God in the flesh. This is who I am, and I'm going to show you who I am. I mean, no one could have endured this, beloved, except the perfect man who is God incarnate. He's the only one. You or I would be looking for, you know, door number two. Yeah, I don't like, I don't really like door number one. Uh, Can we go to door number two? (laughs) What's behind door number two? There is no door number two. I mean, there are two doors Jesus was facing. The two doors are basically he could save the world, he could die for the sins of the world, or he could save himself. Save the world or save yourself, Jesus? Which is it? Selflessness or selfishness? And what is described here is that Jesus chooses door number one. I mean, we all would have chosen door number two. We would have saved ourselves. That's just naturally what we would do. But he didn't, he didn't save himself. All of us would have, and the reason I know that is because the Bible tells us so. The Bible says there's, there's none righteous, no, not one, there's not one that does good, all these things. So you, you may think, no, I think I wouldn't have eaten the, the, the fruit like Eve did or Adam did, and I wouldn't have done this, I wouldn't have No, oh, you would have, you would have, trust me. The Bible tells us that you would have. And in this moment, like this, we would have chosen self over selflessness. But he says, I'm not going to do that. Christ says, I'm not going to do that. And the second reason I think is important is it provides a great example for us for the victory that we could have when facing our own temptations. How many times are you faced with a temptation and you think, oh, I could never not give in to this temptation? Well, yes, you can. You have an example of someone right here. I mean, have you ever known what God's will for your life is? is in a moment in time? I mean, you just knew, I mean, God just showed you, yeah, this is what I want you to do. But then you struggle doing it, right? I mean, we've all been in those situations. You know, we don't even really need to pray about what God wants us to do. We, he's already shown that to us. But then we struggle in what? Carrying it out, following through, And so we end up praying for strength to follow it out. We've all been there. That's what Jesus is struggling with here. He's struggling in his humanness. He's struggling with his will versus the Father's will. That's really deep, but that's what he's struggling with. I mean, he says so much. I mean, theologically speaking, this is one that's very hard to wrap your mind around because Jesus says the Father and I are one, right? Yet here, the Godhead being distinct, you have the Son's will versus the Father's will. And Jesus is simply saying, I don't want to do this. Don't make me do this. I don't want to drink this cup. I don't want to go there. I mean, it helps me a whole lot to know that Jesus is struggling with his will versus the Father's will. Because guess what? I struggle with the same thing every day. And so do you. It's supposed to help us. We know that we have a Savior who can empathize with us, right? The Scripture says. He knows what it is to have something he desired versus what the father desired. That's why Hebrews 4.15 says this, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Sympathy is just feeling sorry. Empathy means I've been there, done that, and I feel what you feel. Jesus says he knows how we feel when we are faced with God's will, but we don't want to do it. He can empathize with that because it tells us, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, therefore we can draw confidently to the the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need." So the encouragement is that Jesus finds a way through to the other side. Well, how does he do this? How does he get through this temptation? The Bible says he prays. He drops to his knees and he prays. I mean when you think of what God has created when we look around us, different animals and things like that um, it's, it's, it's kind of i mean he definitely has a creative mind right I mean, just look at all the different kinds of animals well, one of these animals is known as a uh, new it's it's g n u g n u and I, I just want to use this illustration because it kind of pictures what it's kind of like a, a wildebeest looking thing uh, it, it, It's called a new. And the new, when it's out in the wild and it has an enemy, a predator, coming after it, it knows instinctively how far this enemy is away. And if the enemy is so close that the new realizes there's no way I'm going to run away from this enemy, what's interesting is the animal drops to its knees. It literally drops to its knees because it realizes there's no way out of this. It drops to its knees and it waits for the predator to get close. And when the the predator gets close enough, it springs up from its knees and goes on the attack. What an incredible picture for us, right? I mean, this is Jesus. The enemy is bearing down on him here in the garden. And what does he do? He falls to his knees, he drops to his knees. He spends time in prayer and then attacks from there. I mean, hopefully, we realize that Satan trembles when the weakest Christian is on his knees. He really does. When a Christian is on their knees before Christ, praying like Jesus prayed, Satan trembles. Satan is a, is a real being, he's a powerful being. He's a demonic being. But guess what? He's defeated. He is defeated. We don't need to be fearful of Satan and his tactics when we're walking in Christ, when we're walking filled with the Spirit. He's a defeated foe. We give Satan much more credit than he deserves as believers. We, we need to understand that, yeah, it's real. There is a demonic host out there. But you know what? Personally, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Comes up in the text, we preach about it. But you have some churches, man, they, they preach in series on spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare here, spiritual warfare there. No, we preach Christ crucified. Because Satan's defeated. We don't want to be unwise and are dealing with him, but at the same time, understand your position in Christ. How does Christ pray here? He prays passionately, it tells us, in Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, it says, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence, it says. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Here in the garden, he is begging here. He's begging. This isn't a little, you know, okay, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your many blessings. No, this is not what's going on here. This is the Lord and Savior beside himself in horror, crying out to God with loud cries, begging with tears profusely coming down his cheeks, sweating drops of blood, to the one who could rescue him from death. And guess what? God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. That's what it tells us there in Hebrews 4.7. Have you ever seen a, a little child that's upset? And sometimes they're just whimpering, right? They're kind of upset. But you ever seen a little child who, you know, I call it ugly crying? I mean, they're, <laughs> you know, they can't even talk, Right? And it's just an ugly scene. That's what's, that's what's going on here. This is, this is Jesus is, was full on ugly crying here. This wasn't just a little, well, I'm just leaving some things off, you know, some steam off or a little whimper. He's not whispering. The text seems like he's shouting. He's pleading. He's begging. He's making his case. He's stating what he desires before his father. And he starts out there, father, father. It's the Greek word Abba. It's a a term of familiarity. It's a term of intimacy. Jesus literally is saying, daddy, I don't want to do this. Daddy, please. Don't make me do this. I don't want to drink this cup. Don't make me do it. Daddy, if there's any other way, if there's any other way that we can reconcile humanity, if there's any other way to wash clean and forgive sins, if there's any other way, Daddy, please, please, let's, let's go that route. I mean, if, you, if you're a father here today, you, you understand the pleading of the son. You understand what that means. But think about the heart of the father, who's being petitioned by his own son, passionately pleading here, please, daddy, don't, don't, don't make me do this. And the father's heart was, you know what, son, I'm sorry, there's no other way. There's, there's no other way. I mean, so many times we talk about the celebration of heaven at the resurrection. Wow, this is great, great, great. How many times do we talk about the desperation of heaven? When we see here the Son of God at his lowest. You may say, well, he knew that he was going to die, right? I mean, he was God. But once again, have you ever known the will of God and yet struggled doing it? I think we all have. I mean, to a lesser degree, think about it. Have you ever signed up for something? Have you ever said, oh, I'll help you with that. No problem. Yeah, just give me a call. And then the call comes, right? Oh, yeah, you said you'd help me move. <laughs> you know, okay, good illustration, right? <laughs> and the day comes, and you're like, why did I sign up? Why did I say I would do the new you struggle. Can I come up with an excuse? I, I don't want to do this. This is what's going on here. If there's any other way, don't make me drink of this cup. This shows me that, you know what? No matter how you feel, it's okay to pour your heart out to God. It's okay. So many times when it comes to prayer, we think like we have to have some, you know, we've all been in prayer meetings where, you know, someone starts to pray and it's like, <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, you know, it's like, whoa, that guy didn't talk like that. What, what just happened? Right? It's kind of a show. It's kind of like, well, what are you doing? When we talk to God, we just bear our souls before God. It's okay to struggle, it's okay to, to be kind of conflicted in your prayers before the Lord. That's what's going on here. Jesus knew from eternity past, beloved, that he was going to be in this moment. He knew it. He knew that he would be the lamb in the hands of the Father, slain for the sins of the world. He knew that. He knew he would be here. But in this moment, in his humanity, he's crying out to his heavenly Father saying, if there's another way, let's let's check that out. God welcomes us to prayer. Jesus is the the epitome here. He's being tempted. And in this moment, he's being tempted to go a different route, a different way, to even to turn his back on the purpose and plan of God. In in this moment, I'm telling you, it's okay. It's okay. Why? Because he's laying it out before his father in prayer. I mean, think about it, you're not going to hide anything from God anyway. God already knows what's going on in your life. He already knows what's going on in your mind, in your heart, and your soul. You know, you don't have to go before God and pretend to be something you're not. Just lay it down in prayer. He prays passionately. He also prays specifically, Matthew 26, verse 39, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He prays here very specifically. He says, if there's any other way, I don't want to drink this. I don't want to go there. I don't want to bear all of this wrath for all of these sinners who don't even care. I don't want to do it. He's praying for an alternative. And this is important. Remember this. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is something that's brought to us, right? It's falling to temptation, it's giving into temptation. That's where the sin lies. And so in the midst of this temptation to reject the Father's cup and to find another way, Jesus isn't sinning here. He's pouring out his heart. It's the temptation that's being brought to him. But he's not in sin because he hasn't acted upon that temptation. That's why he's telling his disciples, who don't understand, but he's trying to tell his disciples, stay on the alert. Satan is closed. We're right here next to this temptation. I mean, if I would have told you when you came through the doors this morning, you know what? When I came in here at 6.30 this morning, I walked in, and there was a giant poisonous, deadly poisonous snake. And it scurried off under one of the radiator things. So just I just want you to be aware, as we go through the service you know, the, the, a snake possibly could leap up and bite you. I don't think you would just, you know, you know, whatever, you know. <laughs> you'd be awake. You, you probably wouldn't even stay. You'd probably say, yeah, this is a weird church. I'm out of here, you know. But, but what I'm saying is, is that, you know what, it would set your, your heart on alert. That's what Jesus is trying to portray here. Well, we have a lion that's roaring around this earth, right? We have to be on the alert. That's why Jesus says here, pray. The the tempter is on the prowl. Pray. He's everywhere. He's defeated, but he is everywhere. See, prayer is not getting what you want from God. Prayer is about getting what you need from God. Prayer is a means by which we receive grace. Prayer is a means by which we, we, we sense God's presence and his protection. Prayer is a means by which we are led by God's direction and his leadership and guidance. Prayer is not getting God's will to align with mine. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is the process that God aligns our will to his. That's what prayer is all about. See, Jesus is making his request. He states it very specifically. But the last time, the last, the last way that he, he prays here, he prays submissively. He prays submissively. He says, not as I will, but as, as you will, Lord. Uh, may your will be done. And then in verse 44, so leaving them again, he says it again. He went and he prayed the third time, saying the same words. Hey, if it's not your will, that's fine, Lord. At least three times he does this. Jesus asked for another way. He asked for an alternative way to save the world. And what does the Father say? The the Father says, no. There's no other way. If if God the Father, listen to this. If God the Father said to Jesus, his only son, there is no other way. You have to go through with this. Guess what? If you're here this morning, you're not going to find another way. If he didn't even give his own son another way, why would you think he would offer you another way to be saved? And the poor disciples, I mean, they're just sleeping. I mean, if if you were to pull back from the scene and be able to see it from afar, I mean, to think that Jesus is is this undone in prayer at this point and moment of this process of going to the cross, I wouldn't have a whole lot of faith personally that he's going to make it. (laughs) I mean, he's not even to the cross yet, and he's, he's completely unraveled. My temptation would, 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 would want to see Jesus more kind of like his disciples, kind of calm and cool, right? What are they doing? They're sleeping. <laughs> They're sleeping. And yet when Jesus rises from his knees here, he has courage to go to the cross. And what happens to them when they rise from their sleep? They have courage to do absolutely nothing. There's no coincidence here that Jesus prays for three hours and he can conquer sin, hell, and death. And they sleep for three hours and they have no power at all and they abandon their Savior. Well, the last thing here quickly, the win over his temptation. The win over his temptation. Then he came to his disciples and he said, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, or behold, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. See, Jesus goes to prayer with his father three hours here. And and, and Jesus gets his answer from the father. And he gets his resolve from the father. He rises up and he he pled with the father. And the father said, no. there's, There's no other way to do this, Jesus. You have to drink this cup. And what does he do? Not my will, but yours be done okay. This is a point of resolution in the life of Christ. He says here, behold, the hour is coming. It has the idea really that, okay, you know what? No more tears, no more fear, no more terror, no more horrifying, no more sweating blood. He's resolved. He's locked and loaded. He's ready to go. That word, you could say enough. It can even be translated finished. It is finished. See, it was settled in Jesus' mind here in the garden, and it was finished on the cross. God the Father said in the garden, Son, this is the only way. And God the Son said, All right, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to drink it. Charles Spurgeon said this, Jesus took that cup with both hands, and he drank it, damnation dry. Jesus took that cup with both hands and he drank damnation dry. What Adam did in the first garden ruined us. What Jesus did in the second garden rescued us. What Adam did in the first garden, he says, hey, it's going to be my will, not your will be done. But Jesus here in the second garden says, No, your will be done, Father, not my will. In the first garden, the Garden of Eden, creation was ruined. In the second garden, creation's been reconciled. And I love how this story ends. Here's Peter, you know, he thinks he's a swordsman, he's a fisherman. And he takes, <laughs> whips out this sword, right? I, you know, some people say, Well, who was he? I think he was aiming for Judas. Think about it. He spent how many years with this guy? Are you going to do this to our Lord and Savior, man? I'll tell you, I'm done with your little game here, pal. He whips this sword out, and he's swinging this thing around, and, and Judas gets out of the way, and he hacks off the, 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 ser, the servant's ear. And, and Jesus, his patience here and his, his compassion, it just blows your mind. He just kind of oh, restores it. Peter, put that thing away before you hurt yourself. I mean, it's kind of comical almost. He does a miracle right there in the midst of everything that's going on. Why? Because he has resolution. He's, it's done. The prayer's over. He knows what God's will is for him to do, and he's going to do it. And he says, do you not think that I can appeal to my father? And who will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? A legion was composed of 6,000 soldiers. So this would represent more than 72,000 angels. Just to give you an idea, one angel in the book of 2 Kings 1935, one angel killed 185,000 men in one single night. Can you imagine how many 72,000 angels would do? What Jesus is saying here is, you know what? Don't you know I could save myself from this? See, he didn't have to do this for himself. He could have said, you know what, Father, I'm done. I can't go through this. Angels, come and get me. But here's what Jesus recognized. Jesus recognized he could save himself or he could save us. But he couldn't do both. Couldn't do both. He could save himself or he could save us. John Owen said this, In light of the cross, the greatest unkindness you could ever do to God is to doubt his love for you. The greatest unkindness in light of the cross that you could do to God is to doubt his love for you. I mean, what more could he do? How much more could he give? When Jesus was being squeezed out in the garden, he was being squeezed out for you and I I pray you feel the weight of Jesus' suffering, of his temptation. And I pray that that will mean Good Friday and even Resurrection Sunday will will mean even more to you as a result. Father, we pray, Lord, this morning as we bow in prayer, Lord, Lord, this text is a hard text. It exposes a side of Jesus we don't often see. Where deepest sorrow and terror, terror and Mortification is very evident, but he chose to go through with it. He chose to fulfill your will and not his own. And so help us not to just glibly march to the empty tomb and go, Whoopee, Jesus was raised from the dead. This was the longest night in Jesus' life. And Father, help us remember that when we're going through long nights. Help us remember when we're going through our sorrows and our deepest pain. That he's already been there, he's done that. If you're here this morning and you've yet to put your faith and trust in this Savior, yes, there is a, a, a roaring lion out there, there is an enemy, there is Satan, but Christ is so much more powerful. Christ, is, is, Satan is a defeated foe. And so we thank you for that. And we pray that you would draw hearts to yourself as only you can. Father, we thank you. Pray you bless our fellowship time across the way as well. In Jesus' precious name. And we'll close with that. Amen.